For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit us online at faith.yale.edu. One of the things that these conversations about patients had started to clue me into was the importance of being attuned to the proper activity or thing for which this time is. The bedtime routine with my children, that time, thinking of it as somehow commensurate with work productivity time would be a category mistake of a sort. It would be an unfaithfulness. And and so that, that impatience derives from a lack of attentiveness to the temporal texture of our lives in relation to God. It makes it hard to chatter about patience. It, for me, at least stands as, a, as an important chastening. This is not a kind of puzzle to be kicked around. It is certainly not a kind of tool to be acquired and employed for the sake of one's own purposes. There's something far deeper and graver, and because of that, more closely connected to joy. This is For the Life of the World a podcast about seeking and living life worthy of our humanity. I'm Evan Rosa with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. And I'm Ryan mcnally Lins with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Thanks everybody for listening to For the Life of the World. Today, Ryan and I are going to be wrapping up and doing some summary reflection about the series on patients that Ryan and I produced over the last six weeks. And for those of you listeners who have been the whole way through. Thanks for joining us in that process. I know from both of our perspectives, Ryan, it was just a really wonderful experience of tapping into a kind of long and overarching narrative around a virtue that is maybe inherently long and overarching. <laughs> it seems fitting that we took a lot of time on this. <laughs> yeah, we spent plenty of time with this series now come to a close. What are some of your first thoughts and reflections about what it's meant to you and some of the things that have stood out. As maybe you might expect, I feel like I've gathered a lot of questions along the way, in addition to any answers that I may have found. And and like personal questions, you know, Adam Idle's emphasis on patience as responding to sorrow, that kind of refocused for me. And honestly, it opens up a bit of a a question for self-reflection. Like, Okay, if maybe in my day-to-day life, uh, like I happen right now, aside from, you know, the long, long dragged out pandemic experience, not to be dealing with intense sorrow, I'm, te- I'm tending to be thinking mostly about impatience and patience in that day-to-day ordinary grind sort of stuff and the context of academic life. But boy, that made me ask, am I really just trying to build like a veneer of patience? <laughs> Like, where are the deep wells, you know? Is this maybe something more central and more profound than I actually had thought when I got started? The fascinating thing about Adam's point there, too, is that when you consider it in a kind of virtue ethical framework, where for a given virtue and the accompanying vices that go with that virtue, the domain that they are a part of, the context that it's for, you don't normally don't think about these things, but here's, a, here's one of those cases where it actually is just eminently practical to, to help reframe what we would normally think of as patients correcting busyness or 
hurry or tapping your foot in a line and realizing, no, there's a kind of diagnosis. There's, it's more psychological than that. And that when you place it in this different context, that the domain of patients is actually one of mitigating or moderating our sorrows. Now that I also found that deeply impactful. And here's a thought that it sparked for me. And I've been wondering if that, if the drives to hurry and the kind of the productivity drumbeat side of impatience couldn't be in an important respect, also a manifestation of sorrow. Yeah. That there's here, here's the big, here's the big thought is, Oh, maybe this is just, maybe there's an aching sorrow over mortality and the kind of chronic time bound character of mortal human existence that has as one of its many little fruits, the sense that I'm always running out of time and that wasting it is, it's irrecoverable, irredeemable. It's always frittering away. So I have to, I just have to like master it. it provokes that kind of control oriented stance that we talked about with Tish Morin. Those control moments really resonate with me because, well, I think I am in my own way. I'm acquainted with sorrows and like a form of mild depression at times. I recognize in me the immediate habit, which I would describe as a habit of impatience to simply control what I can and find the smaller things of life that are easier to fix that are achievable goals or the kind of fixable problems that you normally encounter, which is to, to say, not that those things are bad. In fact, it can get the ball rolling for me often. Yeah. yeah. Get, get a little momentum built up. So, and furthermore, I think, you know, there's this related vice of, you know, acedia or acadia that Sarah Schnicker brought up in her episode that, does come along with a form of spiritual sorrow or depression. And that is often the antidote. You simply go through the motions until those motions, the kind of snowball effect. But Adam's point about joyful contemplation and kind of moving in that direction does speak to me insofar as to make progress in patients beyond merely the quick fixes or fixing all the small things in life. It just reframes and, and puts my attention on what real patients must involve inevitably is saying yes to the struggle to receive it and acknowledge the fact that it is a spiritual virtue that needs to be cultivated with the kind of contemplation and prayer and meditation that, that he was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Those kind of little habits of, of doing what one can and, and focusing in on that, like all due respect to that, yeah, that can yeah, be good right. and important, but where I feel the risk of that in my life is as a covering over the deeper, bigger stuff. They mask our fundamental existential kind of lack of control and can wind up being a way of telling ourselves the story that I think a lot of, well, I was going to say modern, but I I don't know. I think also noble Roman sort of self-stories is very stoic sort of thing to say that one is in the end master of one's own destiny captain of one's own ship all of that sort of stuff there are things you can do in your regular everyday life that doesn't change the big deep thing of the kind of givenness of your existence and to the extent that elicits a sort of sorrow i do think there is a, a kind of deeper patience a way of suffering one's finite 
fallen createdness with attention to God as the one who not only has given that createdness as good, but also is redeemer who lives and who sustains us and who draws us to everlasting life. So patience as current. I know that you brought up at that marked you and that was really convincing. And I, I would say that's precisely what is needed there to move beyond the more just trivial or ordinary or elemental things of life and actually address the, the, the deep sorrow or the deep injustice. You have to construe patience as courage. And I felt called to courage in that sense. And, and, and the book of James does quite a bit with this and the establish your heart passage from Jude 5 kind of connected with me. Would you read that? I, it's not coming to mind immediately. So the passage is from James 5, it's verse 7. Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Hmm. And that's that kind of, that, that message of strengthening or establishing one's heart, I think as other translations have it, is that kind of, that call to something deeper, that call to moderate your sorrow. And there's something on the path to joy there that is, that is meaningful to me personally. But it's not, it doesn't ignore. No, it doesn't. The legitimate reasons, the good reasons for sorrow. You were recently telling me about this, this experience you had around a campfire. Yeah, to pull it back to the to where my thinking usually is. So, so I was around a campfire in friend's backyard, and it came time. I don't know how it came time, but it came time to make s'mores. And somebody had brought, as it always does, as it always ought to. Honestly, someone had brought, you know, specially designed s'mores sticks skewers for this right uh um, the tech i usually use like an unwound coat hanger <laughs> and, and somebody had brought the massive marshmallows they're what like two two and a half inch diameter and a good two and a half or three inches long of they're large and and so my friend tyler called over a marshmallow got it on his skewer and i watched <laughs> honestly in just complete awe as Tyler sat by the fire, his marshmallow perched on his hand, the skewer, and he rotated it at a constant rate, <laughs> never stopping, never moving it up or down with respect to the fire, just a constant rate, as though he were like the rotisserie machine at the grocery store, yeah. carefully attending to how it looked with each revolution. Yeah. waiting and waiting and he roasted this marshmallow for i kid you not four or five times as long as i have ever roasted a marshmallow in my life <laughs> in um, my family there's a lot of burning happen no i mean we're, we're, we're 30 seconds on the tops yeah i as how fast can you get the marshmallow done ideally without scorching it but if you've got to scorch it you do right yes. but he did this when at long last it was this perfectly uniform golden brown on every single side he took it off he got some of the chocolate he carefully opened the marshmallow and slid the chocolate inside wow. so that the chocolate would melt inside the melty marshmallow and this um, tutorial is 
I know Only you did not good. realize podcast listeners <laughs> that you would get a s'mores tutorial Listen. in this little coda on patience, put it between the graham crackers and it was done. And this yeah. whole time, having been working on this series on patience, I was sitting there having a surprisingly spiritual experience. It struck me that, that Tyler kind of understood that the kind of human participation in generating created goods requires an understanding of the time that takes and a devotion to that time. There, there was no foot tapping going on. I find myself always running ahead to the enjoyment of the s'more and wind up with a lesser s'more as a result. And this might be overstretching it, but I grew up in, in a church background that made a lot of the, the Kairos-Kronos distinction, these oh, yes. two, yeah. two types of time. Why don't you rehearse it here just in case others have not grown up in such an environment? Roughly done is something along the line. Kronos is like clock time, tick-tock, tick-tock, there it goes. And Kairos names the kind of the... The fullness of a time for a thing. The, the it being the opportune moment. So so for Michael Jordan, the closing seconds of a playoff basketball game is a Kairos moment for a great shot. There is a clock. There's chronic time going on there. But at, on a different plane, those Michael Jordan, Damian Lillard, the, these folks have that kind of, they're tapped into a different kind of time. That's the same kind of time that my dad probably was referring to when there's four seconds left in the game and you just keep saying, there's plenty of time. There's plenty right. of time. Right, there we go. And so that's Kronos and Kairos. Yeah. And so, yeah. so when it, you know, it'll say something like in the fullness of time, God sent his son. That's a kind of Kairos kind of time. And I was thinking about this in observing my friend Tyler, because it seemed to me that on a kind of purely chronic account of things, there's not much to be said for spending a lot of time on that s'more. There's, the question of opportunity cost is all-consuming because it's always, you know, what's the most advantageous thing that could be done with this time? Time is always slipping away. And I found myself thinking that maybe one of the things that these conversations about patients had started to clue me into was the importance of being attuned to the proper activity or thing for which this time is a less uniform account of time that says, for instance, you know, the bedtime routine with my children, that time is for that. And so thinking of it as somehow like commensurate with work productivity time would be a category mistake of a sort. It would be an unfaithfulness. And, and so that, that impatience derives from a lack of attentiveness to the temporal texture of our lives in relation to God. I think this is observable for any parent doing the bedtime routine. And Hipsters might want to say like the slowness with which you brew coffee or driving the slow lane intentionally or just taking a deep breath at the line in the supermarket or whatever. I think constantly being on the lookout for those passages of time that create opportunity. That's an element of what's going on in patience here and is representative in the, the marshmallow s'more story. But I think it's one of those 
ways where it's constantly being mindful of that, constantly being drawn into that and being given a different way of seeing the ordinary elements of life, a different way of seeing things that we would normally rush through, stopping down and slowing down and paying attention does cultivate patience, but really like insofar as patience is a part of a, you know, a larger whole good life, it's this really wonderful, inviting way of thinking about it. And uh, so it uh, absolutely connects to me. So none of that is to valorize slowness as such, right? Because there are times, there are moments that are for swift action. And I think it's good to be released to realize that there can be patient hurry, an attentiveness to a rhythm that's not a lockstep beat. So it, it's not the consistent thump, but more the kind of rhythm that you get over the course of like a classical symphony where passages will slow down and speed up. And, and it's a matter of being attuned and in step to that rather than saying, just slow the whole thing down. Yeah, that, that's interesting. You know, one of my thoughts about what patience does as a moderating virtue, and this is where I'm going to get real geeky audio nerd a little bit. So some people, this might be over your heads. It's sorry about that. But you also get to learn a little bit about what a compressor does in audio. And but what a compressor often does is it you set a threshold. And there are different types of compression, but you set a threshold. And then every time the audio signal peaks above that threshold, the compressor kicks in and what it does is it, it, it just moderates or mitigates the, the sound signal that's coming through. And it, basically like what cultivating patience can be for an audio engineer is appropriately setting the threshold for how much sorrow rightfully belongs in our life, how much urgency rightfully belongs in our life. And then you really just need to adjust the compression to be sensitive enough. And that's like a lot about what a kind of virtue ethical approach is anyway, is a context sensitivity to moderate our passions and moderate, in this case, our, our sorrows and allow for, allow for some additional production, so to speak, to, to overlay on those signals and attenuate them and, and bring them back down so that they sound real nice in a life that goes well. What we agreed to do is we're just going to go through each episode and do some processing. There were definitely amazing moments, more than we could cover in just a wrap-up episode for each individual episode. And listeners, go back, uh, listen to them. But what Ryan and I have done is we've highlighted a few things that you can follow along even in the show notes from each of these. So uh, if you'd like to see all of those show notes from the episodes in this series, you can find them in the show notes for this very episode. And we're just going to roll through some of those, some of the quotes, some of the points that our guests made that seemed to be particularly interesting. And we're going to start with Andy Root of Luther Seminary. All right. So, so I, I wanted to pick out this one quote that and from what Andy said that struck me as really, really insightful about one of the many perverse ways that we relate to time and busyness in certain social contexts these days. He said... To say that I'm busy is to indicate that I'm in demand. We talk to each other, like especially in academia. You're like, hey, how are you? You're like, I'm good. I'm busy. I'm good. And they both communicate something. Like they'd be like, yeah, I'm doing good, but I'm busy. And then in some sense that is correlated with 
the goodness of my life is going good because I'm busy. And in a lot of fields, but you know, particularly in academia, the response of, yeah, things are good. I have really nothing to do. And I have so much space and I'm just, I'm really not in demand. No one is really asking me to present papers or no editors ask me to write a, a chapter for a book. That can communicate that something's wrong in a lot of fields, but I think particularly in academia that to say that I'm busy is to communicate that I'm in demand, that, that, that I'm reaching out into the world, that people want my performance of the self in some ways, that I'm performing well because I'm busy and because I'm in demand. I have some people looking at me or aware that I'm performing this. So busyness becomes, like you're saying, a measure of the good life. So I, like, I get fewer emails than a lot of the people I know, than most of the people I work with. And that should be, I should take that as a good thing. I don't actually know anybody who's like, you know what? I get so many emails. It's a great thing for my life. But I would be lying if I didn't say every once in a while, I have a twinge of self-worth anxiety, <laughs> right? Like, why is Are everybody else demand? getting more emails than me? <laughs> like, why aren't there a bunch of people asking for my time? today. And I think Andy puts his finger on that, that there's a kind of time gets bound up with our with our like status and recognition competition that's so so prevalent in, you know, particularly highly educated social spheres today, professionals and whatnot. So that that struck me as, as really important. Does that resonate with you at all? It does. I, I, I think the desire to be in demand is, you know, that is that desire to be significant for something and for someone. And what's fascinating about this is, you know, when you pair that with what Andy said about the sacred weight of time and resonance, which are the correctives to feeling like, or to, to baptizing our busyness. And I, it really points out the importance of feeling in demand for the right reasons. And what are you in demand for? What are the actual demands upon you. One, they're probably far less than we create for ourselves. They're artificial in so many ways, but, but it really reveals this need to feel recognized, this need to feel important and how we build up an artifice of that. When we frame our importance or hurry around productivity, around what we do. And if we were to find that sacred weight, then I think we would find that we are in demand for something much different, in fact. Like you're yeah. in demand to be present to the people that are with you. You're in demand to be paying attention to, to nature in a different way. You're in demand to be in tune or in resonance in the flow with the spiritual, with God. And I just think that's, that's a very important very different that we, thing. Yeah. yeah, and that we started with this particular episode, I thought it was just so important for starting with the context in that way. It's interesting that you talk about a kind of relation to the present there. That reminds me of our conversation with Kathy Tanner. She had a lot to say about the ways that contemporary economic structures and the culture, the spirit that goes with them, shape our experience of time. And that sort of way of being present that you were just talking about seems really different from the kind of approach to the present that she drew out. Is there anything from that episode that you wanted to raise? Yeah, that episode was amazing because I just had never connected economy to patients before. I just had never thought that anything related to finance or money had much to do with the question of waiting. But really, 
I mean, now that I've listened to that episode and now I've thought about it a, little, a lot more, it's perfectly fitting, of course. And it all the way goes back to that, well, it's that cliche of, of time is money and the temptation to think that it in fact is. And the very much, the very important need for a Christian approach to time and money for that not to be the case. So there was this point in the conversation that you had with her where she talks about um, there being no profit in waiting. So there's no waiting. That's uh, the other part of it. So the GameStop thing, that's not a patient process. People are doing what they're doing in order to see an immediate rise in the stock that then is then going to have a negative effect on hedge funds that are shorting GameStop. Yeah, you're all you're always expecting something to, to happen rapidly, immediately. And if it doesn't, you're not going to profit in, in the way that you otherwise would. There's no profit in waiting. And that just, I mean, not just for the other kind of homonym with the prophetic, but I just loved that phrase. There's no profit in waiting. And of course, that's a kind of polemic statement uh, around like trying to describe the current state of affairs when you take finance dominated capitalism and you overlay it into a kind of moral scenario where that's a kind of fact of the matter when you assume finance dominated capitalism. There's just no profit and waiting. But of course, like what then is the value? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, we, we are very much at risk here of, of taking something that Tanner said in a defined context and with where she's right and turning it into sort of like a truism. So, so <laughs> Thank you for pulling let's back. acknowledge that, that caveat, but then go on to say that, that it does, it aptly captures a widespread sense, sort of that those economic scenarios where that's true, where it's no longer the case that the profit isn't precisely in waiting for the fruition of your investment, but now happens in a more bang-bang sort of tight attachment to every single fluctuation of the moment, that those sort of economic relations, they seem to illumine something that's true about life, (laughs) right? They just, they play into the sort of cultural scenario that that our conversation with Andy set up and that makes it I don't know it just stands very much in contrast to the steady drumbeat of the Hebrew Bible that calls upon the people to wait upon the Lord yeah and, and be led and be led yeah it's it is not about it is not about taking the reins and you know we can't wait the Babylonians are in the way we got to go to Egypt and get some help it's and I mean this is not easy kind of stuff to ingest and follow in one's life but there but somehow we have to wrestle with that kind of that witness that maybe it will not be easily recognizable profit but there is precisely something crucial in waiting yeah yeah and the other one of the other elements the key takeaways in in your conversation with kathy for me was about stability that we live in this volatile world and and this is what set up our episode on God's patience, which we'll talk about next. But that stability and steadfast love, that steadiness that you're referring to, I think one of the quotes that also stood out to me from Kathy was, something has to hold firm in order for you to take risks. There are sociologists and political theorists who talk about something has to hold firm in order for you to take risks. And that means 
you know, risks that have to do with unreliable people and blah, blah, blah. So that it's not like, it's not an either or. You direct all your attention to something that is risk-free or that is completely stable or eternal or whatever, but that they're, they're connected to one another, that in virtue of being committed to uh, a God who doesn't change and who's stable, that enables you to throw yourself into an unpredictable, volatile, fallen world and not feel that you're going to be destroyed by that. And that holding firm, it harkens back to the establish and strengthen your heart kind of thing for me. But that stability is so much about what I think it communicates so much about patients, Christian patients in particular, is that where you, what is what grounds the stability? It's not profits in this case. And when you do pay attention to something that is deeper and more long lasting, of course, you know, the eternal steadfastness of God, what you're getting is that kind of stability that will take you through volatility. Yeah. And it's not you or something of yours right. that holds firm. Yeah. Right. It, that the stability is extrinsic. Yeah. It's set, it's set outside of you. Yeah, not extrinsic, eccentric, because it, it, this is that's to say that God isn't just like alien from you, but you don't own God. God is always giving God's self to you, which is maybe a good point to, to just turn and talk a little bit about about Paul Daffy Jones. Yeah, what was so cool uh, about this transition was that basically where Kathy left off, Paul picked up. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to get them together to talk theology because I, I get the sense that they have some like doctrine of God disagreements and various... I, I don't yeah, think sure. that you would could perfectly synthesize their theological systems to the extent they have them. No, but, I just mean thematically. Uh, from our very, yeah, from our, our purely opportunistic vantage point of trying to glean a little bit about patience here, I think it was a really great juxtaposition. So what stood out to you from this conversation with I mean, Paul there's so much. I remember it being a kind of a just surprising twisting and turning of a conversation. But I wanted to highlight one thing that we talked about the Psalms already a little bit. And Paul said this, thinking about the parts in the Psalms that involve straight up accusations against God. This is where you go to God and say, look, you're not holding up your end of the deal. Yeah. Come on. The Psalms of complaint. And he has this to say, he says, God gives ancient Israel the time and space to accuse God is patient with expressions of trauma, expressions of guilt, expressions of deep anguish. And God is so patient with them that they get included in the canon. And that's got to be right at some level. The Psalms of lament and complaint can get, as we know, incredibly dark, incredibly bleak. One operation of divine patience could be that God gives ancient Israel the time and space to accuse God. God is patient with expressions of trauma, expressions of guilt, expressions of deep anguish. And God is so patient with them that they get included in the canon. Like the, some of the most powerful, skeptical, doubtful, angry moments are found in the Psalms. So God's letting be at this moment and letting happen includes within it God's honoring of grief and trauma such that those moments become part of the scriptures. This is not an easy thing to pull into a system by any means, but the fact that in some respect, the word of God includes the people of God's accusation 
against God is remarkable. It is. And it's remarkable in part because what we need to remember here is that it, it's, it's, this episode is about God's patience. And we were just, we thought like we would go God's patience and then human patience. But what's fascinating, what's exposing itself to me even right now is that's God's patience in response to human impatience as well. Mm, yeah. Um, so we're impatient with our trauma and, and, and patient with our anguish and we want things to get better. We're impatient with injustice and we can't wait, but it's fascinating to see the response there and that they're present in the scriptures such that they can formulate a life of prayer and a life of meditation. And, you know, there's some really fascinating psychology as well about being angry with God. I'm not aware of this. Yeah. There's a psychologist named Julie Xline who specifically works on, on basically the impact of, of doing just this kind of thing on, on one's, one's well-being. And it turns out that it's overwhelmingly positive, something that we're normally quite afraid to do, quite afraid to get angry with God. There is, there's really interesting evidence that you know, it's an important part of one's emotional life to be able hmm. to express that even toward God and, and often helps people get through trauma much, much, much better. Oh, that's fascinating. That seems like it might get us at least relatively close to the kind of perceptive psychological remarks we got from an ethicist, Adam Idle, in our yeah. conversation with him, mm -hmm. thinking about Thomas Aquinas on patience. And I mean, that was a powerful episode because of his personal experience over the last couple of years. But this kind of connects to the anger thing. Because he says that moderating sorrow is not to suppress it or develop an affected callousness or disenchantment, jaded relation to the things one really loves. Sorrow, if it's not checked, can easily devolve into anger, hatred, and fear. What it means to moderate sorrow isn't to suppress it or to develop some kind of affected callousness or disenchanted, jaded relation to the things that one actually really loves. And the expression of anger towards God seems to me totally consonant then with a certain kind of patience because it's not, it, that's just, that's got to be part of maintaining a not jaded relation to the things one really loves. It's got to be part of living in a world that's in important respects out of joint. And yeah, which is, yeah, yeah. go ahead. I go mean, ahead. well, it honestly, it fits with my metaphor from earlier, which says, you know, like the, the threshold is set not at the basement level of sorrows, right? Like the sorrows are present and the, and our sorrow compressor should really only kick in when it becomes out of moderation, right? Too much. And you have to be very sensitive to these contexts, but the fact is not all is well. And, and there, and these sorrows, there are realities to them. And so the expression of them is part of the whole emotional picture of what it means to be human. And this particular quote from Adam, I feel like is very hard won. And that's what, one of the things that marked me about the conversation with Adam, I know that you two are, are close friends as well. And he was very open and vulnerable in his, in his episode, um, talking about the loss of his son 
to stillbirth. And that was a very moving and poignant moment for me where I feel like his other comment around, you can really only say something about patients from within the struggle to receive it. As I was trying to finish this chapter on patients, our, our son was, he was stillborn. He was, you know, he was 39 weeks. He was and some change. He was, yeah, he was, his umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck and he died. And that hit me like, like a truck and then a bolt of lightning and then a tsunami and, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. It was, it was, I'd never experienced something so traumatic and it just, it whittled us down to, to nothing. And if it were not, I think for all the thinking I'd been doing, the writing that I'd been trying to do about this virtue, I don't know how I would have been able to withstand the onslaught of the sorrow. Again, hard one words very difficult to be able to say that with the kind of historical experience that he and his family has gone through. Hmm. It makes it hard to chatter about patients. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think it's, it, it, for me at least stands as a, as an important, just chastening that this is not a kind of puzzle to be kicked around or, I mean, it is certainly not a kind of uh, tool to be acquired and employed for the sake of one's own purposes. There's something far deeper and graver, and because of that, more closely connected to joy than than all that. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think that's an important reason to foreground our next episode, which was on the psychology of patients, in particular, like the, the positive psychology of patients. And the reason I'm saying it's important to have a kind of comment like that from Adam first and, and your point about, well, really the inability to chatter about it, the inability to merely instrumentalize it to make one's subjective well-being increase or something like that. You have to foreground it with the kind of existential struggle before you start talking about the benefits of it or the measurement of it. And, and yet I, I feel like the conversation with Sarah Schnitker, a psychologist at Baylor, you know, I feel like she brings so much theological and philosophical sensibilities to one, the, the definition of patience that she's trying to measure, but also the exploration of it, that serendipitous kind of connection point where, you know, she's a psychologist, she's coming at it from a scientific perspective and wanting to measure patients and, and find ways to create interventions based on that research such that you can implement a practical way uh, of becoming more patient, but fitting that we first could hear from Adam and be grounded in that deeply existential struggle that, that kind of helps us to understand the weight, again, the sacred yeah. weight of what is at stake. Could, could, we, talk, could we talk for a minute about a, a kind of 
conundrum that Sarah's presentation of a, a kind of structure for a patient's intervention sure. brought up for me. Yeah, yeah. So she she laid out um, basic, three basic steps: identify, imagine, and sync. It requires patience to have a lot of patience. This is a famous quote. It's not something you can snap and have overnight. But our research suggests there are strategies that we can implement to help people become more patient. So an easy way I like to talk about this, even though it's not an easy process, is the identify, imagine, and sync steps. So first, it's important that people actually identify what they're feeling when they're in an a waiting situation or suffering or frustrated and to identify that and not necessarily have judgment of it, but just to say, okay, this is what's going on. And then what we like to talk about is then start using your imagination to think about the situation in a new way. So the fancy word for this is cognitive reappraisal. And there's many studies showing that cognitive reappraisal is one of the most effective ways to regulate our emotions. And then that leads to really this third step of syncing. And here I mean sync with your purpose. So we need a compelling reason why <laughs> we are suffering or waiting or bearing under this frustration. And I think this is actually where we often go awry in our culture is we try to just use these nifty psychological tools of, okay, I'm going to reappraise or I'm going to think positively, but you need something deep <laughs> and strong to latch onto. And we like to talk about creating a narrative that supports meaning of suffering. So there's two latter steps where you, you got to reframe the thing. You got to put it in a different light that I find myself thinking, well, sure, but that can only work if you actually recognize that different light to be a truer light. Okay, um, yeah. There's no, like you can't just make up a story where this bad thing that happened is actually good. You can't just make up a story where the silver linings wind up outweighing the bad. Yeah, I think the cognitive reappraisal there, I mean, it really does need to be itself moderated by something normative, that you want to be in touch with reality, you want to be in touch with the truth. And therefore, what helps is to is to open oneself up to in cognitive reappraisal, what's often happening at an emotional level is you're not in touch with uh, reality. You're not in touch with the truth. Instead, your emotions, they far outweighed one's rational element and need to be moderated in an important way. Cognitive reappraisal ought to only work when it is in fact a truer reappraisal that you are connecting back to the real back to the true and and i would say that to varying extents this is going to apply to step three too with sync with your purpose right not just any purpose will work of course if you're syncing with an ulterior purpose or an evil purpose there's no good and that's going to come from that you could just be i think one of the one of the examples that came up here was a patient assassin or something like that. <laughs> right. No, that's yeah. And that's a perfect, yes, very patient, willing to wait, moderating the emotions. Indeed, we call them patient, but this is the important sense that you have to unify them, 
toward an overarching good. And, and so, I mean, I wonder what she would say about that. That that might have to be an open question that we're left with. Last conversation we had was with Tish Harrison Warren. What jumped out at you from that one? Gosh, that I wish she was my priest. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm I'm like, I've come from an Anglican background and I completely understand why the New York Times has come after her now too. I thought one, her willingness well, let's just point this out. You asked her point blank <laughs> at the beginning of the conversation. Do you think you're a patient person? And I think I think what came out of that was one, her wonderful willingness to just be open and, and vulnerable about it. But also, also the point that, you know, we always see other people as more patient than ourselves. And often we are not good barometers of our own virtue. Maybe that's indicative of our own uh, lack of true humility, of true self-knowledge, perhaps, but that 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 struck me as as an important point to start off with. That you know we do need to be patient with ourselves to some extent in our pursuit of it. And you always think other people have it off, have it much better than you do. I think for me, what's standing out now is the the willingness to face up to our lack of control, and and not to see the pursuit of patience as a kind of very clever way of somehow outmaneuvering our lack of control and getting into a position of control. And but instead to to seek imperfectly, haltingly, often not very well, to live in a way of being willing to be led as and that I don't I don't know how much time you have spent in your life seeking the leading of God. In my experience, for whatever reason, if reason is the right category here, it's not the sort of thing that tends to just come right away. It's not the sort of thing that tends to come in like absolute clarity when you want it. And so the kind of seeking to be led is in, in a large and large measure, a matter of weight and attending and being frustrated by it and being led even in and through that. Yeah. And that's that related virtue of meekness that is, implicated there and i wanted to replay that her reading of that hans Urs von balthasar quote so let's listen to that well, some of what christian patience is rooted in is the idea that time is not ours even our time the moments and days of our life ultimately belong to god so hans Urs von balthasar has this great quote this is this is what I was thinking of when you, the whole time you were asking me this question is, um, is he says, God intended man to have all good, but in his God's time and therefore all disobedience, all sin consists essentially in breaking out of time. Hence the restoration of order by the son of God had to be the annulment of that premature snatching at knowledge, the beating down of the hand outstretched toward eternity the repentant return from a false swift transfer of eternity to a true slow confinement in time. Hence the importance of patience in the New Testament, which becomes the basic constituent of Christianity. More central even than humility, the power to wait, to persevere, to hold out, to endure to the end, not to transcend one's own limitations, not to force issues by playing the hero or the titan, but to practice the virtue that lies beyond heroism, 
the meekness of the lamb which is led. I love that quote, Ryan, just because, I mean, wow, I mean, it's beautiful language, but the virtue that lies beyond heroism is meekness. And what Hanser's von Balthasar's offering us here is is something that I really think speaks to the, the cultural moment we're in, where, where we're just constantly tempted to transcend our limitations. And so this is really about control. You know, this is uh, her point about control. And trans, the transcendence of our limitations is on offer all the time. With respect to knowledge, we have awareness of world events like we never have had before. We can get things extremely fast using the computer in our pocket and and meekness is i mean it's this related underappreciated virtue that's similar to patience and i mean one of the one of the things that i remember hearing about meekness from a sermon probably a long time ago is is that there is a strength to meekness that there is it's controlled strength now what i like about the paradox here is like the controlled strength or meekness of the lamb which is led right it's like where does the control and the strength actually come from? It comes from being led. It comes from being, being laying down in the pastures of the shepherd. The good shepherd. Indeed. Any other closing thoughts from you? There's a temptation to, to try to, to wrap a bow on it, but I think that would be somehow not in keeping with the, the untidiness of things. And so, so if we can end it here, in a sense, unfinished, that seems about right to me. That's fine with me too. Ryan, thanks for joining me for this. And really, I just want to say, like, on behalf of all the listeners, too, thank you for initiating this particular series. I think it, it really is so fitting that we did it at this point in the pandemic. But it's one of those timeless questions, <laughs> no pun intended, that we need to be continually reminded of. So thanks for having the attention to and the need for these kinds of reflections on patients. And thank you for producing this, putting it all together. And thanks to everyone who's listening. Thanks, everyone. Over the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing is preparing for a kind of fall launch of the podcast. And so we're going to be running a few conversations like this that are a little more open-ended, a little more free-flowing. And starting on October 2nd, you can look for an episode featuring philosopher Charles Taylor. Ryan and Miroslav Wolf interviewed him recently, and we're really excited to share that with you all. So subscribe if you are not yet a subscriber and if you are already a subscriber thanks everyone for listening and we'll be back with more next week for the life of the world is a production of the yale center for faith and culture at yale divinity school this episode featured ryan mcanally lins and me production assistants by martin chan and nathan jowers I'm Evan Rosa, and I edited and produced the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. New episodes drop every Saturday, with the occasional midweek. If you're new to the show, we're so glad that you found us. Remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And if you've been listening for a while, thank you, friends. If you're liking what you're hearing, I've got a request. Would you support us? It's pretty simple, really, and won't take much time. Here are some ideas. First, you could hit the share button for this episode in your app and send a text or email to a friend or share it to your social feed. Second, you could give us an honest rating on Apple Podcasts. How are we really doing? 
Finally, you could write a short review of the show in Apple Podcasts. Reviews are cool because they'll help like-minded people get an idea for what we're all about and what's most meaningful to you, our listeners. Thanks for listening today, friends. We'll be back with more this coming week.